Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. It's time to attend you and I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here at Talk Radio. As a nation prepares to remember the brave young men who lost their lives on D-Day 75 years ago in 1944. And the US President Donald Trump arrives in Portsmouth for the final day of his state visit. And the real reason that he is actually here. A day of commemorative events including Royal Navy ship salutes and Red Arrow displays will culminate with a reenactment of the parachute leap into Normandy and the unveiling of a monument to the fallen in France. It's a day of immense pride, sorrow and dignity. And it should act as a tribute to all those who took part, those who returned to the UK afterwards and those, of course, who very sadly did not. There should be no room for dissent, no space for protest and absolutely no politicising of the event whatsoever. Even Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn is joining in, or so we are led to believe, even though at the weekend it was still not clear uh, whether he had accepted the invitation. So perhaps he will have a better day than he did yesterday because coming up we'll also be talking to Quentin Letts about an extraordinary day in Westminster, a day when Donald Trump charged the press, skewered the leader of the opposition and claimed not to know Michael Gove even though he'd been interviewed by him and had his picture taken with him just a couple of years earlier 0344 499 1000 as ever, uh, we would like your views on all manner of things that happened after we finished the show yesterday, the Theresa May press conference, uh, the milkshaking of an old Trump supporter uh, in the middle of Parliament Square by a woman who works for the NHS and of course so much more besides we'll also be asking, what's bugging James Bond the new movie has been plagued with mishaps and accidents, I'm wondering if it's been cursed by someone. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, if somebody had said to you that Donald Trump and Theresa May were going to hold a joint press conference after having had a meeting in Downing Street, you would imagine that all sorts of things would go wrong. Things would fall off the wall, lamps would fall down from the ceiling, Donald Trump would almost certainly snap at somebody from CNN and call them fake news. Uh, but in fact, the press conference went rather smoothly. And if anything, Donald Trump actually emerged from it as a guy who almost looked like he knew what he was doing. Let's talk to Quentin Letts, Times columnist uh, and uh, journalist supreme, to find out what he made of it all. Quentin, a very good morning. Morning, mate. Well, um, I have to say, I've been very impressed with Donald Trump on this trip so far. He hasn't really put a foot wrong, has he? Uh, he's been house-trained a bit, perhaps. I don't know. But I think also, yes, he realises that uh, when you're on a state visit, you have to 
uh, perhaps be a little bit more circumspect. Mm. And uh, he conducted himself by Trump's standards uh, with with uh, some aplomb yesterday and dignity. And there was um, things were a little bit more controlled than they were a year ago when he gave a press conference at Checkers and took about 100 questions. <laughs> <laughs> yesterday, it was only four questions allowed from the press. But there were various things. I think the most striking thing politically was uh, his refusal to meet Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. But more than that, this was on a day when uh, Mr. Corbyn, the Labour leader, had appeared at a, a rally at which Trump had been described as a fascist. Mm. And, and then also- we learned. We, then we learned from Mr. Trump that the same Jeremy Corbyn had uh, begged him for a meeting. So uh, Mr. Corbyn looked perhaps a little bit. Uh, two-sided. Oh, he certainly did. I mean, he certainly was, in my words, skewered by the president. I mean, I was fully expecting Corbyn's people to come out and say that Trump had made that up, because it sounded, when he said it, like the kind of thing he would say to discredit people, you know, like he says that, you know, Sadiq Khan's (laughs) almost as bad as de Blasio and he's only half his size, you know, that kind of thing. You know, because you you could have been sure that he, because it made Corbyn look so bad that you thought, well, that can't possibly be true. Well, no, Mr. Corbyn's people had to admit that that, that was that was that was true, yeah. and uh, they did that quite quickly. Um, but it was a little bit inconvenient for, for Jeremy Corbyn. But he would say, uh, the Labour leader would say, well, you know, I, I believe in talking to all people, and therefore, uh, you know, I've got to try and do business with Mr. Trump. But mm. uh, that was uh, that was one amusing little side thing. The other thing was that Mr. Trump uh, was asked what he thought of the Conservative leadership election, and he said, well, he said he liked uh, Boris Johnson, known him a long time, thought he could do a good job. He thought that Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary, could do a job, good job. Mr. Hunt was just in the front row. And then he said, well, Michael Gove. I said, I, he said, I don't know Michael yet. <laughs> but then he looked at Jeremy Hunt in the front row and said, but tell me, Jeremy, could Michael do a good job? And that was uh, a, a moment that uh, was a little bit tricky for Mr. Hunt and everyone was laughing at him. But, you know, there's an element of mischief about Donald Trump. Oh, there is. Uh, and uh, I thought he... he um, he knew exactly what he was doing, and it was very much—it was very much more subtle than his normal kind of sledgehammer approach, wasn't it? I mean, he, he appeared to be a man uh, who was trying his best to be kind of amusing rather than, you know, sort of rapier-like, and he wasn't trying to actually kill anybody. The sledgehammer was not entirely absent. Uh, he was saying that uh, uh, all these uh, the protesters. I mean, there was a reasonable sized protest against him yesterday yeah. in Trafalgar Square, and uh, Mr. Trump discarded that as a yes. as, as, as a mere. He didn't uh, see it. Uh, a mere tiny rabble of, uh, of troublemakers. Well, yeah. you know, and he said it was all fake news about the protests. Uh, uh, I don't think it was entirely, but never mind. That's that's Trump for you. He causes, he goes around the place causing a controlled amount of mayhem. Mm. And uh, he, it's quite a good political uh, way of operating, really, because it means that uh, you cause an impact. Uh, it means nobody can be entirely sure what you're going to say. Mm. So they're all slightly on edge, and they are sometimes relieved when you haven't caused more trouble than yes. you have. I mean, he's the sort of Jose Mourinho <laughs> of politics, isn't he? Because Mourinho yeah. would always cause some kind of diversionary tactic so that people weren't talking about how awful the team were, or in Trump's case, how terrible the policy is. Uh, they, <laughs> just, they just talk about him. But I thought it was uh, fair enough that he couldn't remember Michael Gove, because after all, he also couldn't remember the pewter set that he'd given the Queen last year uh, when he walked into Buckingham Palace the day before and pointed it out, and somebody said, oh, no, that was the present you gave from last time you were here. So his memory's not what it was. 
No, not a details man particularly, and maybe his hearing's not too good either. He was asked about the NHS, and he didn't know what the NHS stood for. But you know, why should he? Mm. This is about, he you know, he's got plenty of other things to think about, and maybe he doesn't have the most turbocharged intellect. But he's got a he's got a political personality, and it's a bit like I think sitting down to dinner with a very messy eater. Mm. Uh, you, you emerge from it rather relieved that you haven't been sprayed by more. <laughs> I think that's absolutely <laughs> right. But thing, another thing that was was quite fascinating yesterday was watching the number ten. Downey Street door waiting for him and Theresa May to come out from it. And the number of people that came through that door who were not him and Theresa May was quite staggering. I mean, there was dozens of them. Yeah, there were, including a bloke in an American naval uniform yes. who, was, who was carrying that big briefcase. I saw that. Is that the it's nuclear codes, as they say? That, that, that has the nuclear button in it, I, I fear. And uh, so you always look, you always gulp a bit when you see that, yeah. uh, that geezer standing there. But yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of the Trump family. It's rather odd. I mean, slightly... Uh, the sort of behaviour we used to expect from uh, third world republics, yeah. of, uh, the presidential family mm. uh, uh, accompanying him on a trip, but he had three of his children there, very much, very much in, very much in the cockpit of uh, presidential politics: uh, Eric, Donald Jr., and Ivanka, yeah. and uh, and then Melania, the graceful Melania as well. So there was uh, there was a big contingent around him. It's a bit like being visited by the Jackson Five in their heyday, when they would have had presumably all manner of <laughs> managers and wardrobe assistants and all the rest of it. But it, but it has been a fascinating trip in in lots of ways. And today, I suppose, will be the culmination of it all. Where this is where the solemn part kind of kicks in. I believe Jeremy Corbyn is going to be in attendance in Portsmouth, uh, but he kind of yes. left it a bit late to confirm that, didn't he? Yeah, Emily Thornberry's going down there as well. Yeah. So oh, great. It could be interesting. could be interesting if she bumps into uh, uh, Donald Trump, a sort of summer wrestling bout uh, that would be. Uh, but, yes. Uh, no, it's going to be a, a, a day of gravity and solemnity and uh, an important day. And a sort of day, actually, when I'm going to think about my grandfather today. He landed at D-Day minus six. Six hours before D-Day, he was a sapper went in to clear mines and he went in to pay compensation to French farmers who were about to have their crops ruined. So, you know, it's a day when some of us have got family memories and yeah. family contemplation as well. It's an important day. It's very important. I was watching some uh, interviews last night with some of the veterans and, and it really is quite staggering what they went through and, and what they what they were prepared to go through. And, and, and even the RAF people who were talking about the numbers going out and the numbers coming back and how they lost 50,000 aircrew and, and they talk about it as though, not that it was nothing, but that they just had to deal with it and that it was something that they, they knew was a risk of what they were doing. Well, thank goodness we haven't had to do that in our generation. Yeah. And you know, Mr. Trump would say, well, the importance of NATO and the reason that you European countries have to pay more for NATO is to preserve that, that peace. Mm, exactly right. And, and then it's all over to France later on, isn't it? There's some um, uh, sort of events going on. Um, President Macron's going to be there. I think they're going to be unveiling um, a new um, sort of monument to, to D-Day. And I mean, I, I presume you've probably been over to those beaches, but they are incredible when you walk around over there, aren't they? Uh, extraordinary places. And also you still see bits of the old Mulberry Harbour uh, near the beaches. Mm. And uh, it does remind you, it wasn't that long ago. You know, my mother can remember uh, hearing all the planes going over um, you know, in living memory, that is, of, of uh, all the, uh, the the forces leaving for, uh, for for Normandy, and that was a moment when she knew her father was uh, was involved in that, and uh, she wasn't sure what was happening to him. My goodness, it wasn't just the the troops that were brave; it was mm. it was the the families as well. Yes, absolutely right. And and just to take us back out of the reality of of, of that incredible day um, and and that incredible time as well. Um, when Trump leaves, will sort of normal service will resume, I suppose, because for Theresa May and the Tory party, this has been quite a handy um, sort of intermission, if you like, because people haven't been talking about how useless the Tory party is uh, and how hopeless the, uh, the contenders for the leadership are. 
Well, not all of them can uh, hopeless. I mean, I think I would argue there is a certain sort of there's signs of life in the in the Tory party, but those signs of life are going to possibly be threatened because there is on Thursday. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow there's the uh, Peterborough by-election. Mm. Friday morning, we'll wake up and find the result of that. And uh, that may itself, if, if that's a, an interesting result, it could have an impact on the Tory leadership election. But really what this, this Trump visit has done, it's filled a vacuum. There's been a terrible vacuum in British politics while our political class tries to come to terms with uh, the, the instruction that's been given by the British people. And, yes. uh, that's what this, this visit has filled a few days while uh, our parliamentary class has been uh, examining its navel. And Europe has been more or less off the table altogether. I mean, very. I mean, aside from one or two mentions of Brexit yesterday, where uh, Theresa May and Donald Trump discussed the possibility, apparently, of suing them, um, it, it's not really been discussed much. Well, it won't really go anywhere, the European thing, until there's an, uh, a new Conservative leader, uh, till we know if that new Conservative leader can command any sort of... Uh, government in the House of Commons, and also until there's a new administration in Brussels, because mm. the, the guard is going to be changing there, and we're going to be saying goodbye to Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, Drunkard, or whatever his name is. And um, <laughs> yes, they're, they're, they're unfortunate mispronunciation, Jean-Claude they Juncker. They're going to be replaced by uh, a new commission. So there is an element of uh, of stasis while all that happens. Yes, and today Prime Minister's questions presumably will not really be very important because the main players are not going to be at it. But it's going to be a very weird time, is it not, watching Theresa May uh, kind of walking in and out of Downing Street without really being in charge? Well, we've had this before. We've had this at uh, the end of the Thatcher years. We've had this at the end of the Blair years. We've had this at the end of the Cameron years. So it does, you do certainly get these times when there is no thrusting government. But quite often the country is better run. <laughs> yes. Case. And uh, as, as far as Prime Minister's questions today, uh, it's going to be the C team. Uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey is going to be standing in for uh, Jeremy Corbyn. You won't have heard of her. I have barely Well, heard. no, I have heard of her because <laughs> I, 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 I found myself watching an interview she did some years ago uh, and I couldn't quite believe it. So I've become a sort of a, a sort of fan in reverse, if you like, of her uh, every every sort of uh, utterance. And so whenever she does appear, I always watch it for comedy value because it's really quite amusing. If she had a different haircut, she'd look like Rodney from uh, <laughs> Early Thoughts and Horses. But, That's uh, right, absolutely. And, of course, you'll be sharpening your pencil, presumably preparing for a return to Parliament. Uh, well, Parliament is back. Uh, it has started again yesterday, uh, but uh, nobody was paying it any attention. No, uh, uh, it was like it was, it was as, as well attended as a county cricket match, and um, uh, it, they'll, they'll be there today. The, uh, the the House of Horrors is back, but um, <laughs> really, it is it is frozen uh, in in paralysis until we get a new Conservative leader and until there is some uh, idea of what Europe might be thinking about a, a, a change yes. deal. And is it inexorably going to be Boris, do you think? I mean, it's, it's looking very likely, isn't it? I don't think it is inexorable, no, because he's got to get past the Conservative MPs, mm. he's got to get past that part of the election. If he, if he can get into the last two and then gets his name up in front of the Conservative activists, then I think it is inevitable that he will be chosen because the Conservative activists like him. But the Conservative parliamentarians regard him with envy. That place, uh, you know, just sort of bubbles with uh, hatreds and resentments and envy. And so Boris has got to get through that lot. And it's not a given that he would do that. He's had a good week, but things could yet go wrong for him. Yes, I've got a funny feeling it doesn't happen for him this time around. I don't know why. I have no reason to say that other than just a feeling that I've got. But uh... I think it slightly depends on what happens in Peterborough. I think the rise of the Brexit party has helped Boris Johnson's candidacy. Um, but, you know, he's got a, a formidable challenge to see off Michael Gove, to see off Dominic Raab. Mm. 
and also Jeremy Hunt. So it's by no means uh, easy for him, but I suspect things are looking a little bit better for him today than they were two weeks ago. Yes, I think that's probably right. Quentin, thank you very much indeed, as ever. Quentin Letts, a Times columnist, of course, a man uh, who sketch writes all over the place in Parliament. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Long sunny day. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, 0344 499 1000. Conrad has tweeted in, he says, don't forget the nurses at Park Pruitt Hospital who had the onerous task of putting the returned soldiers back together again. And Chris says, Saving Private Ryan is the best representation of what happened on D-Day. Its brutal honesty is very thought-provoking and there is no sugar-coating. Thousands died for us to be free and we will never forget that. I mean, a lot of people were critical of Saving Private Ryan because it didn't really represent anyone other than US troops going into Normandy. But what I think it captures brilliantly and, and chillingly uh, is what it would have been like to be coming in to massive amounts of gunfire into a beach which was being held by the German forces as they were just literally firing bullet after bullet, round after round, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, killing people before they'd even got off the boats, people drowning in the water as they came out. Just incredible, absolutely incredible. Let's talk to Colonel Richard Kemp, uh, former uh, Afghanistan commander, of course, a man who knows the services in this country better than anybody. Uh, Colonel Richard, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, an incredible day to remember. I mean, I always find myself um, becoming quite sort of emotional, really, when I see some of the veterans being interviewed and think about what they must have gone through. My father was in the RAF in the Second World War. Um, and I, f I find it very, very hard to, uh, to understand what it must have been like, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think um, most of us who are alive today do find it very hard to, um, to imagine what it was like to be sitting on board ships in the channel for in some cases days on end before the invasion and then knowing you're crossing the stretch of water and then um going to be charging up the beach in the face of machine gun fire yeah. um and i think you're you know you mentioned saving private ryan that's probably about the best description you can get if yeah. you haven't done it of that kind of combat but it's you know it took enormous bravery it took enormous courage and commitment from our young men who were doing that in some cases not so young men um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's something we have to uh, admire to this day and greatly. It's, and they not only their courage and heroism, but also what they achieved when they got to the other side, um, the initial stages of the defeat of, uh, of the German Reich. Yes, of course. And there's going to be lots of events uh, over the next couple of days. Um, there's going to be parachute jumping. I mean, it wasn't and just, just from the, the military kind of um, logistics point of view. It was a mammoth task, wasn't it? What was planned? Enormous, and as it happens, I mean the, the, the thousands of of ships and smaller boats and um, landing craft and so on, which which headed across the Atlanta, the the, um, the channel, mm. and also the ships protecting them from airstrikes and from from the German navy. Um, an incredible, an incredible organisational feat, which was actually planned by Admiral. 
um, Ramsey, who was the, the Eisenhower's naval commander and who happened to go to the same school as I did. He was there a few years earlier than me. But um, he was one of the, he's one of the unsung, unsung heroes of the Second World War, on a par with people like Montgomery and Eisenhower, Patton and so on. He, mm. he was the main... He also planned the evacuation from Dunkirk but an incredible feat of, of planning and leadership. Yeah, and even the the, the detail, I mean, I didn't realise until today, funnily enough, when I read it, uh, that the, even the, the, the Spitfires had sort of black and white stripes put on the underside of their wings in order so that people didn't shoot them down knowing that they were British planes. You know, even that, you know, that kind of detail, which I, I, I hate to say this, but in this day and age, I fear would probably not have been thought about. Yeah, perhaps not. Invasion stripes, I think they called them. Uh-huh. And um, and and not only that, but there's also, I mean, apart from the you know the amphibious landing, the the air attacks that took place against Germany, the parachute landings. Um, there was also in uh, in France, in occupied France, there were some very very brave men and women of the Special Operations Executive who were helping to organise and equip and and um, lead in some cases the French. Uh, resistance in in doing some preparatory work before our troops landed there in in attacking German, um, you know, air, r- rail routes and 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 uh, road routes, mm. etc., which would allow them to reinforce. Um, and of course, there was a massive, an absolutely massive, incredibly successful deception operation over here in England, where there was a complete army, the first U.S. Army group, it was called, which was assembled um, in around, particularly around the East Anglia area, which which did its best and actually succeeded in persuading the Germans that um, the invasion would come from here rather than directly across the channel to to Normandy. And so, um, you know, it was not only it was dummy tanks, dummy aircraft, radio transmissions, dummy radio transmissions, simulating a whole army, an incredible accomplishment. Mm. And it was, I suppose, the last of those types of, of, of battles. I mean, because post-Second World War, everything that's kind of happened since has been a bit more technology involved, a bit more kind of automation. It was almost all manual in those days, wasn't it? Well, yes. I mean, you know, obviously warfare had come on a long way up until that point, and there were some very, very ingenious inventions um, made to, to, to ensure the success of the, of the D-Day landings. Mm. But you're right, technology has, has improved vastly. You know, for example, things like just small, not, not small things, but things like predicting the weather was not the science it is today. Right. We, there was nothing, no, you know, there was no, nothing like the surveillance and intelligence collection capabilities there are today, which didn't, the Allies didn't invade blind, but they certainly were blind compared to what they could have, have these days. Right. And of well, course, no drones, no, n- none of the aircraft that could fire missiles from a long, long way away. Yeah. I mean, even communications in the, in the battlefield must have been difficult, I would imagine, wouldn't, weren't they? Yeah, without a doubt. And, um, you know, one of the, I think one of the classic examples of communication failure occurred at Arnhem after D-Day, of course. Mm. Um, when you know some of the major problems they had there was a result of, of radio failure, and of course that still happens today. I mean, I can remember throughout most of my um, military career, we had very unreliable radios. I think they're better now, but right. but still, combat radios are not quite as reliable as your good old mobile phone mm. you have today. And and I think that you know that would have caused, of course, radio communications these days is absolutely vital in battle, and right. that would have caused huge problems for the Allies, the, the unreliability of some of the radios. Sure. And for guys like yourself, Colonel, when you are involved in days like this and, and commemorations like this, 
Um, is it a special um, sort of pride that you have because you've served? Is it different for you than it would be, say, for, for people like me? Well, I think it's... I, I, I wouldn't say it's different particularly, but I think there is... Um, enormous pride because those of us who have served we also studied our military history mm. probably to a greater degree than the average person has yeah. and you know my regiment for example s several units from my regiment and the former regiments make up my regiment the royal anglian regiment um took part in the d-day landings and we you know we we often organize battlefield tours that follow what they did so it, it you know we we have a i think a pretty good insight in, in many cases into what happened and and also, our own experience, I think, uh, maybe adds to our understanding of it. For example, in my case, I, I took part in many campaigns. I think the one most like um, D-Day, not really comparable, but most like D-Day, was when we invaded uh, Iraq from Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And I can remember going across the, 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 the border from Iraq into Saudi Arabia into a battlefield um, which, you know, no one knew what to expect. No one knew what was going to happen. It wasn't anything like as bloody, of course, as, as D-Day and the subsequent operations were, but, this, but we didn't know that. And you had the sa exactly the same kind of raw courage from yeah. our soldiers who were in tanks or armoured personnel carriers going really into the unknown. And these, you know, in most cases, 18, 19, 20-year-old young men right. who, you know, showed very little fear. Of course, they, 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 were, they were worried, but they, they, they nevertheless, they went ahead and did it. And I think when people today say that um, the young people of of today couldn't uh, achieve what was achieved in 1944. I don't think that's true at all. Um, in terms of military capability, we do, we're a very small army now, but in terms of the people in it, they have exactly the same amount of professionalism, courage, commitment, dedication, fighting spirit as, as those people did back in 1944. Of course. Well, uh, Colonel, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Colonel Richard Kemp, uh, former Afghanistan commander, of course, and very similar to firefighters in a way, soldiers for me, uh, because they're the people running into a burning building when everyone else is running out. Soldiers are running into gunfire when everyone else is running away. Let's talk to Gerard, who's in crew. Hi, Gerard. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. So two things, really. Yeah. One concerning President Trump and one concerning the D-Day landings. Uh, I'm enjoying it at the moment with President Trump. He's had a good week, like you said. Yeah. Uh, I'm enjoying watching the Liberals let, uh, and the left's heads explode with uh, Trump derangement syndrome at the moment. And you saw an example of that yesterday, the shocking behaviour of that nurse. It was quite awful. No matter what President Trump does, you'll never get these people on your side. But regarding the uh, Normandy landings, I'm currently re-watching Band of Brothers. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've watched Do that. Do you know, I haven't. It's something I've got it's on my horrific. list, but I haven't seen it yet. It is horrific, and it's not the sort of programme you can binge watch. Right. Uh, we've, we've tried. We've watched one at a time, and me and my wife have sat and said, I don't think I could watch another one mm. of those yet. Let's leave it a week or so because it shows you what those lads went through yes. and it was terrifying. Well, I was watching just some, some veterans being interviewed last night and I was, I was, it was quite upsetting because they were upset, you know what I mean, from what mm. they were remembering. One guy said, you know, I think about this every night. Um, you know, I think about my friends dying every night, every night yeah. since 75 yeah, years like, ago. I'm struggling to watch it. What they must have gone through living it is yeah. just astonishing they were so brave we owe them so much and we should be, be we should all be behaving better than this yes you're absolutely right Gerard very well said thank you so much for the call and then, and then I watch them roll away again
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000. Coming up in the next hour, Katie Perrier uh, is going to be joining us. She'll tell us what's going on uh, inside the Tory party, inside Downing Street, as uh, uh, various Tory leadership campaigners decide who is going to be the next Prime Minister. Uh, Becky has tweeted in, she says, My grandfather, Frederick Martin, took part in the D-Day landings in France. He died shortly before his 100th birthday. A kind, loving man who never forgot the friends and colleagues he lost on the way to Berlin and the sadness and heavy heart he remembered the war by. And Andy says, My grandfather was the King's Shropshire Light Infantry, uh, was in the King's Shropshire Light Infantry, landed on D-Day and sadly died in 2000. I'm currently on my way to Portsmouth. Well, for so many people, this is a very, very important day and a very, very important way to remember loved ones, people who died on D-Day, uh, people who uh, managed to survive D-Day but were scarred by it for the rest of time. Let's go live now, though, down to Portsmouth, where Donald Trump has just arrived. Theresa May uh, down there as well. There's a big ceremony going on. Uh, there's a stage that's been built up for the 75th anniversary uh, of the D-Day landings. Alex Dibble's there for us. Alex, a very good morning to you. Very good morning, Mike. It's about 15 minutes away now, this national commemorative event here at South Sea Common in Portsmouth. The crowds are streaming in because they wanted to be here. They, they wanted to pay tribute to those uh, troops who fought in 1944 and who gave their lives for the freedom we enjoy today. It was 75 years ago to the day that the ships were launched here on the south coast of England and they headed over to Normandy and landed uh, the following day. Uh, today, Mike, there'll be a story of D-Day on the stage that you just mentioned, uh, which will tell the story of it and uh, include a fly-past of historical aircraft. The Queen will be here, the Prime Minister as well, and the heads of state from every country that fought alongside Britain on those Normandy landings. That is the largest gathering of world leaders in the UK since the 2012 Olympics in London. Right, and it's easy to forget the sheer numbers, isn't it, in terms of how many people actually were involved in the D-Day landings and how many troops actually went over. That's correct. I mean, D-Day itself was the culmination of Operation Overlord, which had been planned for a whole two years, and it involved around two million Allied service personnel, that's two million, a remarkable number, 80,000 of whom fought on the beaches. But a man, Mike, that knows a little bit more about the history than me is Mike Noonan, who's a member of the Royal Navy Association and joins me now. Uh, Mike, you served yourself in the Royal Navy for 12 years. Yes, good morning, Alex. D-Day must have been a quite horrendous thing to be involved in. Yes, I should imagine it would be. I'm obviously too young to have been there on the day, but I've met many people in my lifetime that uh, did serve, uh, and they were there on D-Day. And Mike, we were, I was watching, I've been talking this morning about watching some of the veterans uh, who were being interviewed last night on television. Many of them will now be probably in Portsmouth, but they were travelling down last night uh, or travelling down today. Um, they're all very, very... Um, sort of level-headed people it seems to me i mean i wonder sometimes whether we could ever produce that sort of generation again they they went through so much and and they they talk about it as if it was yesterday they obviously remember it uh, in ways which none of us would want to remember it but it's a remarkable group of people these veterans are isn't it yes indeed it is i'm a member of portsmouth uh, royal naval association also a member of portsmouth uh, royal marine association as associate member and um, I have been for over 40 years, so in those days when I first joined, many of those members were indeed involved in Normandy. And it was just something they did during the war, and they didn't really make any big um, hoo-ha talk about it much. Right. And there's a veteran ship, I understand, uh, departing Portsmouth around about 6.30 tonight, Boudicca, I think it is, uh, departing for Normandy. Uh, do you know anything about that? Can you tell us anything about that? 
Well, certainly, I've, uh, my wife and I have done a cruise on the Boudicca anyway, Fred Olsen ship. Right. Yes, they boarded her in uh, Dover last Sunday. They went to um, Dunkirk. Yesterday, they were in Poole, where the Royal Marines uh, looked after them. Today, they're in the Portsmouth Ferry Port, and they've, they've been bussed. I've been watching them coming coaches along to the Common. And um, on completion of it today, they're sailing at 18.25 tonight for, um, for Normandy. Right. And it looks like a very, very big uh, um, um, and fantastic sort of tribute that's being prepared down there today. I'm watching it on TV. Uh, I'm watching as some Navy uh, as, um, as sailors are walking through uh, in full dress uniform. I'm seeing a couple of stages which are up there. How important do you think it is, uh, Mike, not just for people like yourself and, and people like us, but for the veterans themselves? How important is a day like this for them? Well, I think it's, it's extremely important. And it's particularly as, a, as they're all obviously in their 90s, yeah. uh, that they are commemorated. And they, the, what is particularly poignant, I think, are the so many foreign heads of state from other uh, nations that were involved, uh, either landing at Day or uh, being liberated by those armies that went over. Yes, of course. And, I mean, obviously, this is the, this is the biggest anniversary, I suppose, to date. Um, and we won't necessarily have another one maybe till the 80th, which will be as big as this. So, so many of these veterans may not be around for... So this may be their last opportunity, I suppose. That's very true. The last big one we had here, we had the um, warships anchored in Spithead and the Marines actually landed by landing craft and um, helicopter. Uh, but that's not to be this time. It's a different um, format entirely, right. but very appropriate indeed. And are the people of Portsmouth still very much sort of steeped in the Navy traditions of the town? Oh, very much so. As I came along this morning on the bus, there was white ensigns and union flags flying from buildings and private houses all around the area. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable day. And I, I, I kind of want to say enjoy the day, Mike, but, but it seems a little bit too trivial to say that. So, so congratulations to all the men who are there who have survived D-Day and who are still around to talk about it. Uh, and I hope you all uh, are done proud by the ceremonies that take place. Thank you very much indeed. We have got um, a, a veterans meeting place as well as our stall with the RNA uh, regalia there. Okay. And uh, encouraging veterans to come and meet us and talk to us. Fantastic. Mike Noonan, thanks very much indeed. And Alex Dibble, thank you. Now, while we've all been talking about uh, D-Day, and it is very important, there is something else that's quite important going on around it, of course, and that is the political landscape of this country is still pretty much in tatters because while Donald Trump's visit, as I was saying earlier to Quentin Letts, has kind of punctuated um, the last few days and has taken our minds off Brexit, taken our minds off Europe, taken our minds off the battle for Prime Minister, um, it's now going to be back on the agenda as of tomorrow. Uh, the President leaves and uh, Theresa May resigns and finally leaves office on Friday, although she'll still be inside Downing Street. Let's talk to Katie Perry and find out what's going on. Katie, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Now, I have so, to say... Have Dulling up to your good friend, Donald Trump. Yeah, well, you know, he's not my good friend, but I, of course, am perfectly able to look at somebody and not particularly like him, but still regard him as a reasonably good politician. I think he's been charming. I think he's won over many more people than you would expect him to have done. And I think he's basically won the day, hasn't he? What, he, what he's done is he's not screwed up. And that was all that was required of him. And I think that if he gets through today... Um, been quite subdued, which I think he is. I think his family have turned up kind of wearing all kinds of different outfits and really love every moment of mm. being in Buckingham Palace and all the kind of pomp. I'm not sure our royal family has enjoyed it that much, but um, from the look of some of the faces and the, the, the rice kind of winks and smiles, I thought yeah. that was brilliant from Camilla in particular. But 
um, I think that he's done what he needed to do. And I know that this state visit would have, they would have been horrified at number 10 about, you know, what's going to go wrong. This would just be the icing on the cake. Mm. Donald, Trump, Donald Trump is, is kind of known as a bit of a bully at times. And so they're worried that he was going to bully Theresa May because she's down on her luck somewhat. That's not happened. And I think he's been very kind of respectful. Well, do you know what? I think the fact that he was respectful to her and the fact that he was rather kind to her and, in fact, very praiseworthy of her stood him in very good stead. I thought that that showed he did actually have a touch of class. I know you don't think he's got much class about him, but, I mean, you know, he could have done a lot of other things there. I think he's learnt a lot. Of, uh, the Donald Trump that we've seen in the last few days in London was not the Donald Trump that I had lunch with uh, back in 20s, early 2017, January mm. 2017, because... Um, I feel that he does try and think before he speaks now. And he does try and realise that he could be putting people in awkward scenarios. I mean, he still did it over the NHS and whether or not that was, could be part of a free trade agreement um, with the UK after Brexit. So he put, he's put in it a, a bit there and tried to row back today. But generally speaking, he's trying to think before he speaks. He's trying to not offend with things that come out of his mouth. But, you know, I still don't think it's very presidential to be tweeting things like, you're a sad, stone-cold loser, <laughs> as this person's a psycho, whatever, whatever. It's not very nice, is it? Well, it's not, but everybody's focusing on how it's not very nice. But let's not forget that Sadiq Khan basically referred to him as a fascist in a piece that he wrote for The Observer the day before. So, I mean, he's only giving yeah. as good as he gets, really, isn't he? Yeah, I know. You know, the, the big man in the room knows that two wrongs don't make a right. He got right above it. And that's what people look for, but you're not going to get it from Donald Trump. I, I quite, I quite good, enjoyed it, to be honest. Yeah, you would. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because you're a man after my own heart. Somebody comes at me, I'm coming back at him, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I don't care whether you're in the White House or not. And I love the idea that he's doing it even as he's waiting to come off the plane. He's just thinking, I'll just skewer that mayor, who's a bit like Bill de Blasio, only half his size. <laughs> I, think, I actually think one of the strategies that has been deployed brilliantly by the team here in the UK, the organising committee, as it were, because it does take a committee of people to organise a state visit. They've kept him so busy and they've kept his family so busy, that means you cannot be tweeting if you're meeting someone at the same time or you're visiting something at the same time. And I think the plan of action was to, to make, make, keep him off Twitter and make sure that he's busy. But, you know, as we saw, he's still tweeting at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. So, you know, there's no holding him back. Well, I think at that point, Melania has gone off to bed. So, uh, you know, he's left on his own, to so his own devices. But he probably shouldn't go there. Um, one thing I would say, though, Katie, because you're not only the woman uh, who has been at the heart of government inside Downing Street, you've also worked closely with Boris Johnson. Did Boris get helped by Trump yesterday when he uh, said he thought he'd do a great job? Or do you think that's going to damage him? Well, the thing is, you're, you're talking about two different audiences because general public, I think that's damaging. But the Tory audience, the voters... I actually think that the voters in this contest, because, of course, this is not open to the whole general public, it's only open to Tory MPs, they, uh, and Tory members, they think that actually we should have a special relationship with our friends in America. And therefore, um, they're quite optimistic about what a free trade deal could look like post-Brexit. And so they, I don't think they would mind at all. And uh, it's, he's on the front page of the Daily Mail today saying the Tories face extinction if they fail to deliver Brexit. And I've been talking uh, to various people over the last few days, including Nick Dubois, who was in yesterday. He's back in uh, Dominic Raab uh, for the leadership. Um, he's basically said to me, as well as Boris saying it today, that if they don't uh, leave the European Union on the 31st or by the 31st of October, doesn't matter which Tory you put in charge, they're finished. I think that there is some truth in that. I think that there is truth in the fact that what we're going to see in the next few days is that the Peterborough by-election 
um, is probably going to be won by Nigel Farage's party, which is extraordinary. It's come from zero to hero in no time. Uh, this is a party that hasn't got any infrastructure. And sad for me, actually doesn't have a plan on the NHS, a plan for schools, a plan for adult social care, about how we're going to put more houses uh, in places that are needed in Britain. It just talks about Brexit. And I think that's pretty, pretty you know, horrifying if that is multiplied by God knows how many other people if there's a general election soon. And that's the biggest fear in Westminster. If there is a general election before Christmas, the Brexit and we are not out of the European Union, the Brexit party will kind of storm it. And yet I'm not sure that there's any other policies for things that we really need but we're in such a we're, we're, in, we're, we're in such a bad place, like we Katie. Are obsessed. We're obsessed about Brexit. Well, we are. We've got to stop. But we're going to be obsessed with Brexit until such time as Brexit actually happens. And so, unless and until we get a parliament which is capable of delivering what the people want, then I'm afraid that's going to be the way it is. And so, it's Parliament's job, as I keep telling the people in there, to to f figure a way out of it, to find a, a solution. Their job is complicated. It's no good for them to keep turning around to us and saying, "Oh, well, it's too complicated to do this, so we better just not bother." You know, no. You've been told this is the mandate. Get on with it. Yeah, but the day after Brexit, it's. It to think that that would all be over and we can go back to normal is for the birds. It has changed forever. And actually, we're going to be talking about this for five years at least. Sure. We're going to be obsessed by it. We are obsessed and we can't find a way out of it. And during all that time, no one is talking about a responsible policy for how we can get more funding into schools or hospitals or the things that we need or the houses that we need for people. No one's talking about wage stagnation and the fact that people need more money in their pockets to be able to spend on because prices are rising in certain places and you know, for certain things. No one's talking about that stuff anymore. That's the stuff people care about. And we've all thought, we think that we really are obsessed and care about Brexit. But the day after we leave... Those things will still be the same. The hospital will still be overcrowded. The doctor's surgery, you won't be able to get an appointment. And it's things like that that actually matter to people. And I think we just need to realise that we need to exit the European Union just so that we can go back to talking about the things that matter. Because if we carry on like this for five years, all we're going to do is fill our parliament with people who are banging on about one subject and one issue, and I think that's incredibly unhealthy. Well, it is incredibly unhealthy, but what's your alternative? Not to leave the European Union because it's too awkward. No, I never said that. I think we should be leaving by October the 31st, but I think our MPs need to compromise. We're facing two scenarios. We have to compromise on Theresa May's deal. And hilariously, I think we'll end up getting Theresa May's deal through Parliament and we will exit the European Union. And it will just be the fact that she couldn't do it because she didn't have the personal skills to be able to get it over the line. But other people will realise they're facing that or no deal. And then we're at a situation where it's on the second referendum or it's a general election. And I don't want either of those things. I want to get out of the European Union at the end of October, with a sensible deal. And that means parliamentarians have to compromise. I think the only way to get them to compromise, maybe, to have a second referendum and for Leave to win it again, because I'm sure that would happen, and then we'd do it, because then they'd be forced to do it. But I just don't trust them anymore, and I don't think the people trust them anymore, and that's why John Burko's sticking around, because he thinks he can stop it. That's why they keep, um, you know, filibustering and making out that it can't be done, because they want to stop it. It's disgraceful, really, quite disgraceful. The people that really didn't give two hoots about the European Union and really didn't care about, you know, the, the budget and the machinations that go on inside there and who does what job and how they behave. I'm now obsessed about it because it's just a proxy for the reason that parliamentarians don't do as people have told them to do. It's just a thing. It could be something else. It's just the fact that on this particular issue, they've not followed what the public has asked them to do. Uh, although it was a slim majority, it was a clear majority. And therefore... Um, that's why people are so disgusted with what's going, what's happening. A second referendum, in my opinion, would just make that worse. 
the apathy that people have for their politicians. You know, if you live in Hull or Middlesbrough, you might as well live in France or Germany because you feel as close to our political elite in Westminster uh, as they do, i.e. not close at all. Yeah. And I think it's just going to push us further apart and be more divisive. Well, listen to, to what Andy McDonald said. We had him on the show last week. He's the MP for Middlesbrough, right? Labour's shadow transport minister, I think he is. Um, he said that he was a Remainer. I asked him, and this was before the Euro elections, I think, you know, is Labour the party of Remain or is it the party of Leave? And he, and he sort of fudged the answers to that. But what he did say was, well, uh, we've been very clear, which is what they always say. Uh, never believe a statement that begins with, we've been very clear. And he said, uh, he said, look, I'd like there to be a second referendum. And if there was a second referendum, I would campaign to Remain. I said, yeah, but, you know, um, your, your, your constituency voted to leave in massive numbers. Uh, in fact, it was after the Euro elections, because the Euro elections, the, the, the Middlesbrough people had voted, and the North East had voted massively for the Brexit party, and, and yet he's still going to campaign to remain. They don't get it. I know, and what we're seeing is a two-party, traditional two-party state, the Conservative and the Labour Party, are breaking up over this issue, because how they write a manifesto at a future election together on the issue of Europe... And they can't. They can't come together on, on this. And yet, so they're trying to fudge their way through TV interviews. They're being threatened with a sack if they don't stick with, you know, the party line under Jeremy Corbyn. You know, they've been bumped off of prize things. Like Jeremy, um, Emily Thornberry is not going to do Prime Minister's questions this week. And people are assuming that because she basically went further than the party line on the media after the drubbing that they had in the recent um, EU elections. And so, you know, it's a situation whereby... That we're not going to go back to the norm. We're not going to go back to the way it was. Things have changed forever. And politicians need to wake up to that fact and think about, right, what is it that we can offer? How can we be clear and coherent about what, you know, what our key messages are moving forward? But I do feel for them in some way. I know no one has any sympathy for politicians. <laughs> but you try, you try and release a policy on housing right now, or you try and release a policy on adult social care right now, it gets like a tiny little mention in the newspaper of pages and pages and pages on, on Brexit. And so, you know, we can accuse them of not doing their jobs, but even when they try and do it, it doesn't, it doesn't make. No, no one knows about it. No, no one you're, knows absolutely, it. No you're, one you're absolutely right. I think that the political system in this country is effectively hold below the waterline, that there really is no trust left anymore, not only between the electorate and their, uh, and their servants in Parliament, but also even between the individual MPs. I mean, look at the way the Tory race is being run. It's almost as though they're frightened of each other and they've all signed up to this ludicrous, you know, let's all be nice and campaign clean and not campaign dirty and all that. Uh, and it just doesn't feel right to me. It feels as though there isn't anybody kind of absolutely grabbing the crown with both hands and saying, this is what I want and I'm going to go and get it and I don't care what I have to do to get there. Well, I think that's Boris Johnson's kind of mantra, which is, if I don't do it, you are facing extinction as a party and therefore you are you know, can kiss goodbye to your seat in Parliament. And parliamentarians, politicians, they, the one thing they care about the most is holding on to that seat in Parliament because then if they lose that, they lose everything. They lose their right to govern, they lose power, they lose you know, status, they lose ability to, to, to do anything. And so they will look around and at the moment they've been told that that the most safe way of protecting that seat that you hold is by supporting Boris Johnson. I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly that, that comes into play. Yeah, but it again, does. People are thinking you know, about themselves and the party rather than the country. And occasionally I would be critical in the past, as you know, Mike, of Theresa May, when she put herself and her party first and didn't necessarily put the country first. And I think the Conservatives will be punished at the polls if they think that that's the right strategy moving forward.
Now, finally, one quick question for you. Sarah Vine, a double-page spread of Daily Mail today, married to uh, Michael Gove, of course. Um, that's a bit below the belt, isn't it, writing about the state banquet that she was invited to as the spouse of a cabinet minister? No, I don't know Sarah, and I don't need to want to have the need to kind of stick the knife in. But it did take me by surprise. And someone that, you know, as we know, the Queen conversations in the Queen's company seem to be a bit sacrosanct. You don't go around repeating them all. Do you remember the time when David Cameron repeated that she was purring when he told her that they just scraped through that independence referendum of Scotland? He told Obama that, and he got absolutely slapped down again. And I don't think it would have gone down uh, too well. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the... Go Vine household. I don't know whether he says it's a good idea or not. Mm. So um, I'd leave it up to them. Okay. Very diplomatic of you, Katie. We must have lunch soon as well. Uh, you still owe me one, <laughs> I think. Katie uh, Perrier. The other way around. All right. Katie Perrier, uh, former communications chief at Downing Street, of course, also worked uh, for Boris Johnson and his mayoral campaign uh, when London was run a lot better than it is now. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.